Welcome to Notes on Vulnerability, a podcast designed to put stories of resilience, courage and being human at the heart of the conversation. Because vulnerability is a concept that's so often misunderstood, I'm just going to begin this podcast by laying out the definition that I'm going to be using here. And that is showing up and letting yourself be seen when you can't control the consequences of doing that. I think for many of us, vulnerability often arises when it comes to talking about how we feel. Sometimes it's in the context of positive emotions. If you're not really used to feeling it, joy, for example, can feel very vulnerable to express. However, most often it's the negative stuff, the heavy, dark, low emotions that we think no one else wants to hear about, the ones that weigh us down and distort reality in a myriad of ways that can leave us feeling helpless, hopeless and alone. The past year has definitely not been an easy time where these emotions are concerned. Isolation, money problems, missing out on social interaction and feeling like you're falling behind in everything from academic achievement to relationships and babies. The response to COVID-19 has delivered challenges on pretty much every level. A survey by the mental health charity Mind found that 60% of adults and nearly 70% of young people felt that their mental health had worsened during lockdown. One person Mind surveyed said, I feel at my lowest for the first time in a very long time. I feel hopeless. That quote really got to me, I'm not going to lie. I feel quite emotional even just reading it out, even though it wasn't me who said it. Probably because, even though the past year has held a lot of good stuff for me, there were also moments when I felt like that. Maybe you did too. While there were lots of great lessons about slowing down, learning to love your own company, realising just what you were capable of, facing up to old feelings and limiting beliefs, and really appreciating loved ones and kids, let's not pretend any of it was easy. But it's not just talking about hard feelings that can create that spine-tingling sense of being out on a limb. There are also topics that have such a stigma attached to them that I feel like they create a similar kind of distance between us. Periods of menstruality, for example. Despite the fact that roughly half the population of the world bleeds around once a month, every month, for two-thirds of their lives, it's a topic most of us will shy away from. And when it comes to talking about it with someone who doesn't menstruate, I don't know if you've ever tried that, but the response can range from mild disgust and a swift change of topic to uncomfortable giggling or a sort of stony rage. Menstruality, bleeding, clots, cramps, tampons, moon cups, flow, PMT, let's be honest, it's just not really done to talk about these things. Which used to seem fine in principle, except that then this culture of ignorance and shame built up around it that made it feel abnormal, embarrassing and lonely and stopped people from getting help with it. So kind of like anxiety and depression then. My guest on this episode of Notes and Vulnerability is someone who has gone through the darkness that hit many people during lockdown. His healing place has been very similar to mine and to many other people's too, the ocean. Mike Guest is a master of film and photography, an adventurer, a lifelong surfer and a lover of all things water. The start of lockdown last year was a shock to the system for him, as for many others. In his short film, The Ripple Effect, he describes how when the pandemic hit, all the projects he was working on ground to a halt and he ended up at home, alone with his thoughts and feelings. In that still space, lots of stuff from the past started rising up and there was nowhere to escape the way that made him feel. Mike describes this as some of the darkest weeks of his life. From that painful place came a conversation with a friend about going out in the early hours of the morning and taking photos. And this was where the Dawn Days project came from. I will read you the official mission statement for the project because I think it's so perfectly worded and I couldn't do it justice by trying to summarise. There are no rules in Dawn Days. Just be there, be present, enjoy 
and if the notion takes you, document it and share your experience and thoughts with the world. If you haven't heard of Dawn Days, I'd recommend you go and find the hashtag on Instagram. The images and videos are inspiring and breathtaking. They are all taken during the blue hour, which is the hour just before dawn. People all over the country and beyond have captured the experience of just being in the water as the sun begins to rise, having their own individual moments and then inspiring others to do the same. Mike is a talented creator. His professional CV includes shooting for brands like Patagonia and Finisterre, but it's not always the case that someone who is used to being behind the lens can or wants to use such a talent to reveal their own inner self. But Mike has. I admire this bravery so much, not just with the Dawn Days videos he has created, but the very personal sharing that has gone with them. He's had a lot of positive responses to this, overwhelming in fact. In a world that still feels like it's okay for some people to talk about mental health, but not others, he's helping to break down boundaries. He's also one of the only men I've ever met who has a voluntary, genuine interest in women's cycles, which is why I'm going to tie menstruality into this chat. When we had a pre-call for this podcast a few months ago, we ended up randomly talking in some detail about periods. It was really refreshing to come across someone who doesn't bleed, but who recognises why understanding those who do isn't just for the people doing the bleeding. Obviously, he's not an expert on menstruality, and he's probably going to experience the same kind of discomfort we all do when we talk about it. But the fact that he's willing to show up and give it a go is something that makes it a valuable discussion to include on this podcast. I'm personally kind of fed up that this natural process that I go through every month is so taboo to talk about. I feel like the fact that it has been silenced for so long denied me an understanding of my body growing up that would have made life a lot easier. It's time that period chat was normalised, which is why we're going to go down that conversational cul-de-sac in this podcast too. So feelings and periods, let's go. So Mike, welcome. Hi, thanks very much. Great to, um, to finally get to speak to you. So let's start by talking a bit about Dawn Days. How has it made a difference to your life? The process of doing Dawn Days and the friendships and the community that's sort of built around it have been kind of instrumental last year uh, when this pandemic hit. Um, it was just something for, for me to focus on, first and foremostly, literally to just have this thing to do every morning, have a purpose, get up, get out there, and and just start creating things for myself first and foremost and then once it sort of developed I realized the kind of positive effect it was having for my friends and family and then you know the random people that obviously with the, the internet and the way that it is there it just sort of spread through myself and Nick doing it and yeah it's just been a it's been a very a very positive process which has also had negative elements to it which we can touch in on time you know like all these things that we do can become potentially slightly addictive at times and there's good addictions and bad addictions I'm sure but um yeah no you know ultimately it's just been a real good force um for me mentally physically and even creatively you know it allowed me to go into the water with my camera every single day and totally learn that thing even more um than I could have imagined actually so what is it about the dawn and the water that is so powerful? I think when you go down that early, okay, so for me being in Edinburgh and Scotland, Portobello, at the moment, I think it's something ridiculous, like 3.45 or something is sunrise. So the blue hour is like, you know, even before that. 
But I think there's a beauty when you're down at the blue hour, everything's still relatively quiet. You might hear a little bit of wildlife. There's just sort of this glow going on, depending what the weather is. And then slowly as you're in the water, I think you start to hear more, like more birds wake up or you start seeing the oyster catchers going along. Or maybe on three or four mornings, I would see a heron, which you would never see when the people are around. And this is like right beside a city. So I think there's that part of kind of just watching nature wake up in this kind of natural cycle. And then back last May, there was, you know, there was basically no one apart from a cop car would go past that something like, I don't know if they were there at 4.30 or 5. You know, they would do their patrol. So, and then the water, whether it's calm or whether it's stormy, you know, it can look so uninviting sometimes when you're just standing there freezing. And then by the time you get down to what I like to call the seal's eye view, which is that kind of like just eye level, it's always amazing how many different textures there are. And I think that's probably the more time I have away from it, the more I realize that's probably just that, um, how do you put it? You just sort of fixate on all these little bits. You can look at the wider picture and all the wobble and even on a choppy day where you think it's just mush, when you look in and you find those small patches of clarity and then there's another set of like beautiful ripples. So it just becomes quite mesmerizing. Is it kind of like a really mindful moment? I think it is as well. And whether you have the camera or not, but maybe sometimes with the camera, as well, when I'm filming and I'm not taking stills, I'm trying to be so calm and, um, and not wobble around with the camera. So I'm almost not even watching the screen or if I'm watching the screen, I'm just, I'm just like breathing really intentionally in a certain way. I, I do this stuff called foundation training, which I bumped into with this amazing woman called Mora, and then... Um, this guy, Eric Goodman, that kind of came up with it, but they gave me this breathing technique, which helps my back. But I realized that actually by doing that, that also then helped me stay way more stable with the camera and not do that classic head poke as loads of us photographers and filmers do, or when you're looking at your phone, or your laptop, I had to be like really solid mm -hmm. and breathe properly. And so, yeah, and, and I would try and hold shots for like uh, a minute or something. So you'd have these moments uh, on those kind of calm, quiet days. And then on the hectic days, it's just all moving around. So you're then searching for one small piece of clarity. And I think that there's that book by the guy, Jay Wallace, Blue Mind. Mm. And he talks about some of the research that's been done with people on the autistic spectrum and how actually not for everyone, but for certain individuals when they go into the water and they're at that kind of level, I think something engages them because in a way there's so much going on. They're so captivated by it, it seems to calm them down. So I don't know much more about that from than what I read in that book. So th there's definitely something very therapeutic, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole movement around blue health now, isn't there? So it definitely works. Are you ever afraid of the ocean? Because I've done a few sort of dawn dawn swims and getting down there I was I was nervous you know I was sort of worried like swimming in water that looks extra dark I don't know I watched Jaws which I never should have done because now I'm just terrified of totally sort of nonsensical shark attacks in in weird locations um which being a sea swimmer is quite inconvenient uh, but yeah do you are you ever afraid of the ocean or, or is it just a friend Oh, I think I have a really healthy respect for it. 
I think the fear that's come in for me would be related around surfing. Uh, and maybe when I've had some solo sessions on my own in big surf, or I've been out and had a situation with getting caught in a rip or, you know, breaking a board on that kind of side of it. Yeah. I, I've definitely felt that. Um, and probably my first trip to Indonesia, which wasn't surf related, which was actually spearfishing with a Scottish friend of mine. And we went into the middle of nowhere, you know, three hours on a boat to a pinnacle to spearfish, of which I was awful at and still can't dive that deep. <laughs> this guy's going 40 meters looking for tuna the same size as him. And they dropped us off and he disappears off. And I can see his buoys moving around, you know, like behind him. And I was petrified. I was like, oh my God, I don't know what's below me. This is this huge current. I'm in the middle of nowhere. The boat guy's miles off. He probably can't even see me. So yeah, I've had I've had moments of it. But when it comes to say any of the Dawn Day stuff, you know, for me, I guess because of spending time uh, in larger surf and a lot of surf, then it's definitely a really calm, peaceful place. But but for a lot of people, it's not. You know, so I think that's quite interesting. And I think some of the Dawn Day stuff allowed that everyone was doing allowed people to enjoy the ocean just from their armchair or their phone which you know not isn't the ideal thing we want people to get out and enjoy it but enjoy it safely but yeah yeah at times and I, I just have a massive respect for it I've had some interesting encounters in the last couple of years <laughs> yeah, I don't think you can ever turn your back on the sea can you <laughs> well no actually I was just out for went to the beach yesterday with my friend Barry and he was telling me he was out kayak fishing and it was dead calm then the sea breeze kicked in he had his back ultimately to the ocean fishing yeah. and he said it just kicked in and it scared the living crap out of him. You know, he was like, he was like, I was fully having to do my breathing, paddle back in and it just appeared out of nowhere. And it wasn't even massive, but on a sit, sit on top kayak when you weren't expecting that, yeah. it's quite shocking. He's, you know, he's knows his stuff, you know, he's been doing it for years. So yeah, you do definitely got to be very careful. I think, don't you? Like there's a big popularity with swimming, with, all these sort of water sports supping and everything and not having a go at anyone but there's definitely like I think there's a lot of people that need to maybe just keep an eye out keep a check and do do beware because you never know what can happen out there yeah I think that element of unpredictability is sometimes what makes it so satisfying especially if you're a little bit scared beforehand and then you go and you do it and you come out and you feel a little bit more invincible I kind of like yeah. that yeah yeah no that is good and I think it's interesting just to touch on that Jaws thing I was listening to something about sharks and I mean that film ultimately has been such bad press for sharks yeah. and for water in general you know like this whole concept of a, a shark can smell a, a drop of blood in a size of a swimming pool or the ocean, which, you know, actually they can't, all, all this kind of stuff. So it's amazing the effect that that film has had, actually. I'm listening to some scientists talk about it and they're like, God damn it. <laughs> well, I think it gave sharks a malicious intent that they don't have. No, they just don't. It's just from what I've heard, I am no expert, from what I've heard, that really isn't isn't true. And ultimately, any time that anyone gets bitten, it's an investigative nibble. But obviously, they're massive and we're pretty soft. So in yeah. those cases <laughs> that it happens, it's not ideal for those poor folk, you know. One of the things that you say in The Ripple Effect is about letting emotions come up, but not fusing yourself to them. So you say that when you fuse yourself to them, you can't see anything. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so actually that I should... Um, 
contextualize that, whether that actually came from um, an ACT therapy context, um, which ultimately, I guess the thing is, I got taught to see things come up, recognize it, but don't attach yourself to it and become that feeling or that emotion, which is so much easier said than done because when anxiety comes up or depression comes up for people or anger or jealousy or hate or fear, any of these things, we can just let it completely consume us. So I think, I guess that comes from also starting to work on self-awareness, like developing an awareness of self, which I still and will always probably get wrong many times, or it's not about getting it wrong or right. You know, like it's learning to catch yourself before you go down a bit of a wormhole, I think, with these things. So yeah, that's that's kind of where that comes from. Yeah, it made a lot of sense to me, sort of the idea of emotions being temporary, even though they don't, at the time, they feel so strong, it feels like they're never going to go. Yeah, I think, I actually think about it when I think about dyslexia as well. I was speaking to this guy, Darius, who runs this thing called the bullet map academy and it was quite interesting talking to him like very well educated individual dyslexic but someone who works within dyslexia and his concept and understanding of dyslexia and he talked about this visual mind that a lot of us dyslexic have or sorry floating mind so if you imagine a bunch of um, balloons kind of floating which is all these thoughts so I guess I've been thinking recently about the fact that it's the same with those feelings and emotions like we all we can all imagine that kind of thing but if you take it out of your head and you put it out there in balloons or whatever like there's that feeling it's there yes it's tied to me on a piece of string but I don't have to like I don't know climb inside it um yeah so, I mean, you mentioned the dyslexia there, like you've, I noticed that you describe it as with the gift of dyslexia on your Instagram page. Why is that important to you? Um, I think it's about, and first and foremostly, personally re-establishing or reframing how I see my dyslexia. So I'm 40 now. I found out when I was in primary four, it was quite early. So I don't know what age you are there. God, are you like eight or something? Um, and, you know, it was a disability. It was like learning disabilities, learning difficulties. Then it went to learning differences. And now it's like neurodiversities. So they love the Ds. And we've gone from a really bad D, which was disability, to diversity. And I think that's what's really interesting. So I guess you could almost say I'm proud to be dyslexic you know it's caused me a lot of torment through my life and as as it has for a lot of other people but I think when you start to reframe how you look at things it really helps and I think that I've heard this in a number of um, different contexts within mental health aspects you know from uh, female side to male side it's it's about looking at something and not fearing it you don't have to love it but just go okay you're there I see that you're there and I guess that's probably the same as a lot of meditation techniques and mindfulness techniques as well the more I listen to podcasts and books and all this kind of stuff a lot of these things kind of reverberate around it's almost like these kind of universal truths within philosophies religions therapy all, all that kind of stuff there's there's definitely feels like there's a core few things 
Yeah, there's, have you read um, Radical Acceptance by Tara Brack? Mm. No, I've not. There's a similar concept, concept in there of like having tea with Mara. So Mara being all the bad stuff, all the sort of temptations and troubles. And rather than trying to run away or fight Mara, you invite them to tea. <laughs> <laughs> so you're just like having tea with like your insecurities and you know the things about you you're not happy with and you're just like okay cool you're there you know I'm not going to give you any shortbread but you're at the table <laughs> yeah yeah um so one of the things which um came up from me sort of looking at how you dealt with the response to being really open and vulnerable about your feelings through dawn days was that you found it quite overwhelming I just wondered how like, how have you coped with that vulnerability? Brilliant question. Very apt at the moment as well. Um, at first, fine. And you just kind of carry on doing what you're doing. And it felt great to do it from a kind of non-narcissistical perspective, I would say. Just really enjoying talking about it, learning more from people. But I kind of hit a wall. I did a, a podcast with friend Matt Barr from the We Look Sideways podcast. And then I'd had like two interviews for something and had to do some copy for an article. And then my back kind of went out of me and I just felt so self-aware of like the fact I'd been doing all these podcasts. I'd been talking so openly and I felt incredibly vulnerable again. I felt really unsure of why I was doing any of it and I kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole and I have been for a couple months again so I'm kind of like felt also like you know it was a year since the lockdown a year since the personal things that had happened being sent home and I almost felt like I was spun back to the same place I didn't I didn't start drinking again. You know, I've, I've not really been drinking since new year. I've had a little bit in the last few weeks, which I'll probably stop again. You know, personally for me, that works to keep away from that. So I kind of binged on Netflix and Amazon prime. I'm not going to lie, but to me, that was better than, you know, hitting the booze or, or anything else, still talking to friends, still talking to family, but I think I kind of overdid it, but potentially, um, because you're doing this thing that feels good and it feels like you're doing something potentially for the greater good without it sounding like grandioso, you know, like hoping that one or two people are helping. But then I completely forgot about myself. Yeah. So is it like a vulnerability hangover? I think so. Yeah. Like, and I'm only really becoming aware of that in the last few weeks. Or I've been probably aware the whole time, but kind of not knowing what to do about it. You know, there's still very little work around at the moment. I've had bits and bobs, I'm surviving. Um, but just sort of felt really flat and that lack of drive, you know, I didn't have any drive, but I, I kind of wore myself out because I was working on a film for two months, February, March, um, working 8 a.m. till like 5.30 but my time clock was messed up. So I was waking up at 3.45 and I was spinning Dawn Day's plates and answering this and doing that. And, you know, just not going out, but I was doing all this stuff, working a full day, coming back in bed between 7 a.m. and 10 p.m. And I basically kind of burnt myself out again, you know, which was hilarious. Cause you're like, oh my God, you've been like going on about all this stuff, all these things, you know, all this stuff you've learned. Was I doing any of that for myself? nope yeah but I don't think I don't think once you sort of come up 
above the parapet with sort of vulnerability and ideas. I don't think you then have to be the perfect example of what you said. I think you can still like totally fall off a cliff. Yeah, and you're we're only human, aren't we? And 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 a lot of these things, like the grief for the things that have happened in the past, or to to cope with these things, you know, take a lot longer than you think. And I'm a relatively impatient person who's learning to be patient, but kind of realize that this is going to take a while, and I need to kind of go with that and not not push it. I think a great comment a friend of mine had, my one of my best friends, Chris, lives in. He's lived in Switzerland for 20 years. We grew up together. We we talk pretty much daily on WhatsApp, voice messages and stuff. And I remember we were talking about the word depression or depressed. And his pal, Mikey, another scientist pal of his is like, well, maybe it just means deep rest. You just need a deep rest. Now, that's just a flipping comment that he made or whatever. But actually, I quite like it. It's a fair point as well. It's like, you know, another friend, Peffa, I remember saying when I was we were just dealing with something as a group of people. And he said, sometimes when you're in that hole, you're dry, you've had a meal, you've got some water, you're all right. Just sit there for a bit. Don't try and clamber out straight away. So yeah, some of those things where you just need to slow down, but that can be so hard, can't it? Yeah. I mean, like I'm a resilience coach, so I sometimes feel like I should, I should practice what I preach. And yet, you know, last night I spent two two hours wrestling with my inner critic who was screaming at me about my, you know, podcast and my creative writing and stuff. So it just, it doesn't matter who you are, you're always going to be still human. And all these things like they're cyclical, they come and go. Um, so yeah, but even though you have sort of ended up in a hard place with it for now, can you identify rewards from making yourself vulnerable like that in the first place? Um, yeah, the depth of relationships with a number of friends and new friends, I think would be a reward from that, which, which is really interesting. And I've been lucky, you know, before this, I had a, a good group of friends and family that I can talk to, but the depth of relationship with them is bigger and, with new individuals and I guess knowing that it's positively affected some people as well and that was kind of the the thing with the film was it that part for instance or or the whole project in the end because ultimately it was a very unconscious consciously unconscious unconsciously conscious one of them um <laughs> process because we were just doing this thing it was you know me and Nick um who Nick who was the, the the gentleman that my pal Nick Pumphrey, who I talked to about it when when he said he was going to go out and do it, and I was like, yes, I'm going to join this. Like, you know, we just know that there's been this positive effect with lots of people, so that's a, a beautiful reward as well. So I think a lot of people might look at someone like you and think that you know you're creatively successful, you're obviously very adventurous, very physically confident, like either on a surfboard or in the sea, and might think that you basically never suffer from self doubt. Oh so wrong like that's the thing isn't it you know um, there's so many varnished personas out there and you know potentially so has mine been in the past because you just kind of fill the algorithm of, of filling out these things you know we're, we're on these platforms as creatives and as humans but self-doubt like I am self-taught in everything that I've done and there's always a little voice going oh my god how are you going to do this what are you going to do how you know and yeah, I, I always have that. 
and I don't know many people that create that don't, you know, it, it, like so many folk that I speak to and I have that same concept to them. I'm like, oh man, you nailed that. Like, how do you do that? And oh man, I was a bag of spanners that morning before that <laughs> shoot. And like, you are, you're like the best at this. Oh no. And I mean, maybe that's what keeps people on the edge. It'd be nice that we didn't have that though. And I don't feel like we should have that. And I, I think, you know, I'm terrible for giving myself a hard time about stuff. Even now still with this kind of self-awareness, it's, um, I think we all go through it. And I, I hope by doing the online stuff is trying to be more honest about it and more open and less varnished. I don't know if, if it comes over like that, but, but then that's people's opinions. But I think as long as I feel happy with what I'm saying and doing, then it's, then it's okay. You know, and it, it's that whole love hate relationship with the likes of social media and everything, you know, we, it is marketing, you know, that, that there's, I could bash it, you know, but ultimately, you know, it is part of marketing, you know, it's, it's just part of this thing. So it's finding that relationship with it, with yourself and the people around you and the honesty around you. And more often than not, just speaking to someone else that you can trust, they'll probably tell you exactly the same thing that they were crapping themselves before X, Y, and Z. Yeah, I think there's an assumption perhaps that people who are looking, you know, we always have a tendency to assume that other people have nailed things and other people aren't nervous. You know, we, we don't do ourselves any favors, I don't think. Um, totally how do you overcome self-doubt then when it does rise up for you um there's a brilliant it just reminded me there's a really brilliant technique in act therapy as well and they tell you to think of your favorite funny voice and then say for instance like i'm thinking you know oh i'm not as good as that photographer so mine is yoda <laughs> Um, that I picked in the end it's like mm, not as good as the other photographers are you <laughs> you know and by saying that it's like it's kind of ridiculous isn't it and yeah. so I guess it's that's one little tool that I quite enjoy and actually you've reminded me I forgot that and I could have done with that in the last couple of weeks um you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> it's um yeah that that's probably one of them and sometimes it's just like you just got to swing your legs out of bed get on with it turn up not think about it too much i sometimes a lot of people do a ton of prep and i do prep for shoots and everything but there gets to a point where it's just before it where it's like turn up as long as you've got a battery a memory card your sensor's clean you've eaten and you've got some water and you've been to the toilet it's probably going to be all right because when you go into that place of doubt for me when i'm in a shoot i can't see can't see clearly you know it's like it's having the blinkers on in a bad way it's not helpful so bad <laughs> um you mentioned the voice notes um just then uh, i i love a voice note at one point i think i read that you were going into the sea for dawn days and then sending a voice note to your friend um but the voice note was basically what you saw and how that felt that's quite simple and there's no bravado in there. There's no sort of covering up. Like it, it's, it must've been quite raw. So why was that so powerful? Yeah, that's, it's interesting that cause that was my friend Stu that lives here in Porty and Stu and me were doing some, we'd meet up and take a walk with his dog and do what I think has kind of been coined 
Stu's walk and talk, <laughs> blokey pals. And I guess it was just a, a way of taking my feelings and thoughts and experience out of my head. And I guess a lot of people journal, but I guess that could be a, an auditory way of doing a journal maybe. And okay, that was with someone else, but I guess you could just sort of dump these thoughts down. I like the idea of doing the journaling and everything, but my writing's horrendous and sometimes I find it a bit stressful. So yeah, I guess it was um, just getting it out of your head, isn't it? Like taking it out of your thought process and then have someone reflect something back on, you know, that person that isn't going to tell you what to do, you know, like the, the best friends and the best people to talk to are the ones that ultimately act like a mirror for you and bounce back your thoughts and feelings at you and ask you open questions to help you dig into it further instead of actually telling you stuff. So I think that's why probably that was so powerful at the time. And do you think for someone who's in like a really, really dark place, what is it about sharing that's so important? To know you're not alone, to know that it's okay to reach out and to just take it out of your head. Like, cause otherwise you're just gonna go around in this blender. Like, even if that thing is not sending it to someone but you could record it or even say it out loud and imagine that balloon and you're talking that issue or feeling into a balloon maybe. I'm, I'm just thinking of my feet here. Maybe that's a way of doing it, you know, is, is just take it out of that fishbowl of your head. <laughs> yeah, sharks in swimming pools. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to sharks again. So I wanted to quickly go back to sort of the creativity element because I, th I feel like being creative is one of the most vulnerable things that you can do. And whenever you try to do it, everything in you is going to kind of rear up to try and protect you against the vulnerability. And so I have so much respect for people who really are open and honest and where creativity is concerned. So how, how do you protect your creativity by embracing the vulnerability, if that makes sense. Oh, wow. Let me have a think about that. Not sure I phrased that very well. <laughs> well, I think, I guess at first, I get, it's kind of like a friend of mine, Chris, pal I surf with up north, is stop giving a feck, <laughs> stop caring. And yeah. that's a really hard one because it can seem so simple, but it is literally probably about not caring what other people think. And I still do care what people think. I still catch myself in that. But when you can find yourself and go, look, as long as I'm happy with this, that's cool. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. Such a simple concept to say, definitely very difficult to do in person or, or in reality, I think. And, and, and it's just like, can you keep coming back to that thing? I'm like, am I doing... What am I doing? Am I doing this for the right reasons? Or even not even that. Don't even think about those reasons. Create what you love. Do something that you love and just put it out there. So does purpose have a part to play in it? Yeah, I guess otherwise you can just be creating stuff for no purpose, but maybe even that's fine. That purpose is just creating for the sake of creating and doing something for yourself, taking those thoughts and feelings or that art and placing it on the paper or a sculpture or a piece of music or film or photo or whatever that is. So do you ever sort of go outside your known comfort zone of creativity and try something totally different? I do. I've not done it for a while at the moment. I've 
been trying to work out what that was. Actually, it's quite an interesting question. I started doing a project, I think called the series project with a lady that I've been doing some work with called Christina Force. And she runs this kind of like boot camp where you where she helps you kind of like develop your style by looking at what you've done, finding your secret sauce and help you develop. And then she's done this project called the series project. And so she, the idea is you kind of work through ideas and then you distill them down, you dig into it before you even think about what camera and lens or any of that stuff and how you're going to shoot it and how you can take things from something that's kind of like war and peace to like a really simple concept. So I thought, brilliant, I've done my Dawn Days thing. I need to like a pivot and a shift. I need to do something completely different. And it's kind of one of the things, and this isn't her fault, but it's, you know, at all, it pushed me over the edge because I was totally frozen by the kind of success of the Dawn Days, like per, in, in a sense of like, it really worked for me. It felt really honest and genuine and I loved it. And I'm literally just looking at blank pieces of paper not able to think of anything else because I've actually frozen myself with this thing of like, as a friend put it, it was like you do a first album and it's like really successful. And then you're just like, what do I do next? Mm. You don't have to do an album. You could do an EP. You could do a single. You could just do one track. But I found myself just looking far too deep inside again and dug everything up, trying to find this like super meaningful, deep project to shoot when actually... It's like, can I just shoot something really simple? But I couldn't find myself to it to the point where I, I stopped doing the project. I had to pull out because it just, it just, it was just sending me around in circles. Mm. And that was interesting because that put me into this thing. Oh, you're being a quitter. I was like, well, and then, but then I told to myself, I said, no, I just, this isn't right. This isn't right for me right now. And there was loads of brilliant support of people on the calls and of course, we're doing it globally around the world. There was like 15 of us from everywhere, from America to Oz to New Zealand to uh, Singapore. But I just didn't have it within me. I was just like, no, I need a break. I'm fried again. You know, and this was at this, this crux point where I was exhausted. So do you think there's any value in intentionally doing something creative that you know you're going to be bad at? Oh, I think it's probably great, isn't it? It's great to fail or perceivedly fail. Like push yourself. Ab absolutely. I think... I'd like to work out how to do a bit more of that. And I do at times, you know, and again, you don't have to share everything. Yeah. Like you don't even have to show anyone. You could put it in the bin, put it in a drawer, stick it in a hard drive. Not everything has to be shared. I think that's also really important, isn't it? Yeah. But you can then, but, but work out a, a group of friends that you trust who won't give you any BS, you know, and they won't just blow sunshine, you know, find those people that you can look at stuff and just like what do you think you know and learning to take criticism this is that's always quite interesting that's a never-ending process of learning how to to take feedback um when it's personal work that can be even harder because you're so invested but when it's commercial or stuff you've been paid for ultimately the client wants to get what they want to get if you've not delivered it then you've not delivered it so learning to to put the ego aside isn't it like learning to to work with the ego i think is probably one of the biggest learning curves for me in the last while like how to deal with my ego and other people's egos how do you do that self-awareness i think just like 
and having a bit of fun with it. Like, oh, am I being a mic? Am I being a bit of an asshole here? Am I being a bit cocky? Or am I being unfair? Or am I being unreasonable? And that's a never, yeah, that, that's an always a learning process, isn't it? But again, self-awareness and catching yourself where you're like, oh, what part of me is talking? You know, and we, we all have an ego. Like if we didn't, I don't know what we would be, you know? So it's, it's not that it's all negative. It's just mm. sort of relative. Like, yeah, how do you become aware of it? I did read a quote about the ego, which said that you shouldn't leave home without it. So it is essential to us. Yeah. But it's not the place that you want to be living from. No. It just constantly wants attention and external validation. And Yeah. And be like, when you're giving feedback, it's like, or, or with anyone, just being compassionate, you know, mm -hmm. like being compassionately honest or honest, honest compassion or something I heard recently, which I thought was interesting. And I've had a few situations recently where like, I've kind of wondered if I haven't been. I've, I've felt like I've been totally open and honest and fed back some things to people about what they've been doing. And it's not gone down well. Was that their ego reacting or did I completely misread the situation and overstep the mark? But I, and I went down a, a, a deep hole thinking about that and then had to remember, look, I've said what I've said, it's done. Mm -hmm. I did it from a place of love and honest compassion. I'm done. I'm out that you know I've done my bit um, I wanted to ask you about something on your on your website although it's currently under construction isn't it but there is <laughs> yeah yep. that, that was hellish for my research thanks for that um there's a quote like your mi the mission statement I would call it um which is helping people care about themselves so that they can care about their world our planet I just wondered about the, the use of the word care because other people I've seen words used like, you know, a lot more sort of powerful and like, you know, care is kind of a very vulnerable word and it's not something that we often really talk about that much. So I just wondered why you'd used it. Yeah, that's interesting. That was one of those things that just popped up as I was scribbling a bunch of stuff down. Maybe all the others seem like a bit much, but full on to love yourself. You know, that's been overdone. Mm. Um, yeah, just to, to care. Yeah, to remember to care about self. I, I don't know where that word came up. It just sort of felt right. It didn't feel too full on or too, too imposing. It just felt comfortable. It felt like give yourself a hug kind of thing. It's like that's what's, yeah, I, I guess like some of the stuff, like some of those Dawn Days films, like the really mellow stuff, I kind of said to someone, like, they're like, what, what are you wanting to do with this? And I was like, maybe it just gives people like a little bit of a visual hug which could sound a bit like, I don't know, a, a bit random, but I think that is that thing, isn't it? Mm. I mean, if it works. Yeah, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I love the fact that you used it. I think it's a word that doesn't get enough airtime because it's gentle. Well, everything can seem a bit so, or just all, words and language is really interesting, isn't it? Especially within something when you're talking about something as delicate as mental health. And as humans, our reactions to things, you know, mindfulness becomes trendy. Um, meditation becomes trendy. All these things, all these words. And, and, and I think when using words or when trying to describe stuff, I've definitely overthought it as well and thought too much about how to, to say something because you don't want those to be triggers. Like I guess people use the word triggers that, you know, things that winds people up if they hear the word meditation or mindfulness, not everyone, but some people just accept it and go, that's just a thing. You know, it's been practiced for thousands and thousands of years, you know, or 
through all sorts. Yeah, so the, the language is so interesting, which is funny for a dyslexic. I mean, or, although not, because actually just because I'm dyslexic doesn't mean I don't have a very good use of vocabulary. I might not be able to spell the big, large, long words I can use every so often, <laughs> but I can use them. Let's put them in a voice note. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, when I'm coaching, it's interesting, actually, if I ask people to journal, sometimes they get quite a negative reaction but if I ask them to do free writing they're totally fine with it so that's kind of what you were saying like well because journaling became a buzzword didn't it you know like loads of guys like Tim Ferriss Chase Jarvis a lot of these kind of big podcasters I guess they become Americanized they're not no offense to the Americans and and like I remember chatting to Matt about this but there can be that thing of like people have this negative connotation of like, oh my God, I'm going to my therapist. You know, like that American voice. And, and that's nothing against Americans, but what I'm saying about that is just that that's this stereotype. But it's just talking to someone, getting some coaching. You know, I think the best athletes in the world are constantly coached all the way through their career and then they become coaches potentially, or not, because the best athlete isn't the best coach. So I think that's a, a, a re- reframing isn't it or rephrasing of of therapy or counseling or whatever the word is is like pick whatever works for you like contextualize it however it best works for you maybe yeah i agree because it does work <laughs> yeah because it's your recipe it's like it's your meal mm. like you put the ingredients you want to put in like don't put garlic and onion in if they bug you yeah and you don't like that spice don't put it in like just because it says it needs to go in if you don't like it and it doesn't work for you then don't do it adapt again easier said than done yeah <laughs> like everything nothing comes easy does it no totally um so as i said in my introduction you're one of the few people who doesn't bleed who seems happy almost enthusiastic to talk about periods why is that so with any relationship that i've been in i've experienced that as as a male as on on the side of that and it is fascinating ultimately to work out how you could be there as a partner to support or to have a greater understanding because there's no way i can understand it or truly get it because i don't go through it therefore and it's something that seems it's so intrinsically there's just so much to it so i really interested with a friend of mine rachel Samani, a musician pal of mine um she totally lives by as much as she can by her cycle and tries to work everything out from a work and creative perspective and she's really open with it online but then really open with it when you talk to her and you know it's like oh well, i've got these dates free and she's like can't do it i'm bleeding then it's not going to happen I, I i don't want to do it then it's like, oh, wow. Okay. And, you know, so at first you're like, huh, right. And then I just wanted to know more. And I'm, I'm still learning. I'll, you know, and, and she's still educating me or doing, listening to some podcasts and books and, and bits and bobs to know how it's going and then realizing how absurd it is that we work in this kind of 24 hour cycle or the, the male work cycle. Um, so I'm, I'm just kind of fascinated because ultimately why I feel like I could be a better partner, friend, work colleague, you know, if I, if I understand more, but it's, it's a really like 
I'm almost like tightening up talking about this because I'm really worried <laughs> what people might think. Yeah. More probably what women might think of me talking about this, but it's honestly, it's genuinely interesting because I've seen some people go through some horrendous experiences of it. And that just looks horrible. And how do we as male and females or whatever your relationship is, however, you know, what, you know, I'm just speaking from a, a heterosexual perspective. Mm. All right. Oh God, terrible. But you know, like that's the relationships I know, but how, how do we, how do we help as, as a bloke or not help? Maybe that's not the right word, support and educate. And, and I think the thing that I've noticed was that there's such a strong chemical pull with it that people don't know what's going on. And, but once they start to learn, it's kind of pretty liberating for them. And that I thought it's amazing just seeing how Rachel handles it. I just like so much admiration for it. And it's just a great place to, to learn from. It is different to the sort of general narratives though. Um, like the narrative seems to be, if you don't have a period, you don't really need to think about it. And rather than seeing women's cycles as a kind of connected and a little bit magical way of navigating life, um, many people, especially people who don't have periods, seem to think they just get in the way. So I found some studies on this and there was one statistic that given the option, 71% of men would choose longer intervals between their partner's periods. Maintaining sex life, social life and relationship quality were all the factors cited in that preference. <laughs> so it was about me, 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 basically. Yeah. I feel like this is a really a deep ignorance of why women are cyclical and why it matters to women. I mean, not all women are cyclical, I should say that, um, but it is something that is important. Is this a sort of an attitude that you'd recognize among your, your male peers and friends? Is it quite widespread? Yeah, definitely. But, but even more so, a lot of people, like I'm not alone in, in wanting to understand it. Um, but, but yeah, definitely. But I think that's like the miseducation for all of us from a young age, isn't it? Mm -hmm. If we understood, I keep saying the word understood, but like if we learn to work with all of these things, then it's beneficial, most importantly, for that individual going through it, but then everyone else around them so that there's a support there and there's a framework to, to respect those days that someone needs time out. Yeah. Like, it's almost seen like an indulgence, I think, when it, when it should actually be normal for someone to say, um, I've got my period or I'm bleeding, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do this. Like, not because I physically can't, but because I choose not to. Like, yeah, and that it should be totally fine to have that yeah. choice because to, to give yourself the time to rest and then recuperate, have the energy and then come back out with like with the right energy and uh, and and power to do what you need to do like i think it was always interesting the way rachel put it with i suppose people explain it through seasons and that always helps like that was one of the things that made it most most kind of relatable for me as you know as a bloke to just be like okay how do i get a bit of a concept of this or a bit of a grasp um, well, i guess if you don't go through it it's like everything isn't it if it's not your experience of life understanding what it would be like to live like that is quite challenging yeah, uh, doesn't mean you can't do it or that you shouldn't try. But I, I know that, you know, men definitely notice women's cycles. Um, I've got a few more statistics here. Yeah. Um, so apparently men find the voices of ovulating women more attractive than women who are menstruating. 
And then there's this statistic that apparently lap dancers make 80% more tips when they're ovulating compared to when they're menstruating. And even just reading those out, I'm wondering if that's helpful to even say them, because like, I'm not sure there's an understanding of why the woman would be more attractive when ovulating. And I also have quite a big problem with the idea that women should always be attractive to men. So the parts of our cycles when we're kind of bloated, snappy, insecure, or just want to be alone, like they're not okay. And you know, the men don't notice women in those parts of their cycles and don't really want to know about it. What do you think about that? Oh, wow. Have I just bombarded you with... with yeah, that's quite, a, that's quite <laughs> a lot, but that's good. It's quite a lot. I think, yeah, I mean, that is so interesting, isn't it? That, like you say, this whole thing that women should always be attractive or, I mean, it's, which is kind of ridiculous, isn't it? So I guess it's just that there's, it's quite a war and peace kind of thing this isn't it it's 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 huge isn't it but it's like just with anything with anyone just whatever they're going through at whatever time that's okay but you need how do we learn how do, I don't you know so I'm a bit I don't know where I don't know how to is this making you uncomfortable talking no about I just don't know how to <laughs> I just don't know how to reply to it if you know what I mean whereas it's like because it does see it just ridiculous in a way that that we should think this way, but we're inducted to think this way, aren't we? Yeah, and that's one thing. And that, then the shame that someone might feel because they're in that yeah. bloated phase or whatever, like they shouldn't have to feel that way. Or even something as simple as, you know, when I've got my period, I guarantee that when I take something out of my bag, a tampon will fly across the room because it just, it seems to fly out of my bag, you know, and then someone sees the tampon on the floor and I have this immediate sense of shame. And then I'm like, why? <laughs> There's half the population of the world bleeds. Why am I ashamed that I'm bleeding? It's bizarre. Yeah, because, yeah, I guess because society's kind of driven this in, hasn't it? Yeah. Which just so wrong. <laughs> just. Well, it all comes, you know, the patriarchy, and I think that is too big a topic considering yeah. we've got like ten minutes left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you feel is being lost in the current sort of attitude towards? not talking about periods just greater understanding isn't it of each other or compassion maybe mm. towards each other male and female you know masculine feminine feminine forms but it's just yeah sorry i'm just trying to work out yeah i think just the lack of compassion or understanding like why should anyone have to hide any part of them you know whatever their sexual preferences or their um that they're going through their cycle or their depression or anxiety any of these i think it kind of plays onto all of it like it should be okay to talk about it and it should be totally fine to feel that way what do you think stops us from talking about all these things i wonder if it's our inner critic is it is it ourselves do we stop ourselves from talking about these things by grabbing onto what we perceive society tells us we should and shouldn't do mm wonder if it's not to say as simple as that but that's the one thing that pops up in my head I think have you named your inner critic oh no that's an, I've never thought about doing that mine maybe I should just call him Yoda yeah well no because Yoda's a nice character like mine is Dolores Umbridge from um, Harry Potter ah oh so maybe it's meant to be a bad thing or is it what the inner critic yeah, but maybe maybe it could be a maybe if you give it a night something that you like, 
then you can change the relationship with it. I don't know. I'm just thinking on my feet here. Oh, okay. Because then otherwise it's always negative, isn't it? Like if I'm, if I name it something bad, then something bad's always going to come out of it. But maybe there is good to come out of that inner critic. Like again, learn to re, maybe we try, maybe we should try and reframe or re-experience with that inner critic. So there's not as much hatred for it. Like I heard that from one of the podcasts that Rachel put on, put me onto mm. for a period was talking um, about learning about the cycle was this lady. And she talked about how at the start, she talks to women about how to readdress their relationship to their monthly cycle. And she, she says to them, look, I've learned to love mine. I'm not telling you, you have to love it just don't think of it as a tsunami. Yeah. Like, so, but then that's one of those things when I listened to that, I thought, God, well, you can take that into any thing in life, like changing, like, oh, I'm going on the shoot. I'm really nervous. Oh God, it's going to be really full on as opposed to, well, I've got everything I need and the weather's okay. Or the weather is what it is. I just need to turn up with a full belly, have gone to the toilet and uh, had a shower or, you know, like, yeah. yeah I mean I guess with your inner critic you can always say well it's got good intent because it's it's usually trying to protect you yeah but I don't know about you but mine just goes about it in such a nasty way <laughs> I don't know if I want to give it a you know Dumbledore or yeah 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 no fair play no it was just a thought it but was no, just a thought it is an interesting idea like because reframing things is how you stop them looming large isn't it so perhaps yeah perhaps by giving it a, neg a negative name or a, 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 like a bad character, then you're helping it? I don't know. Fueling it, yeah. Fueling it, maybe. Just the thought. It's Yoda then, is it? I suppose so. I guess that's because that's, that's the voice I use when I, <laughs> when I do it. So maybe I'll call it Yoda. And who knows whether what... I think Yoda Yoda's just uh, an embodiment of... Uh, I don't know what, actually. I don't think it does have a masculine or feminine form. I don't think so. Gender fluid. Never, never thought about that actually. Well, let me know how that goes. <laughs> I will do. I'm going to call mine Yoda. Let's catch up in a few weeks and uh, and work out see how that goes. Okay, proper science experiment here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the thing I usually ask people at the end of these podcasts is for one note of vulnerability. So that's your kind of message. That you want people to take away from this chat oh maybe i have this thing where i think about like a harbor and tides mm -hmm. so a lot of the harbors in the east coast of scotland here are very tidal i mean a lot of things are very tidal but it, they completely dry out so in that harbor the tide's all the way out but the tide will come back in it will wash back in you know like you will be in the water again or the same with the sun I, I think one of the things i pulled from dawn days was that even though i couldn't see it the sun rises every single day and sets every single day by a slightly different amount of time and a slightly different degree and as does the tide come in at different times and different volumes so just remember everything keeps ticking that's a really lovely way to end actually thank you so much this has been a really interesting chat yeah thanks very much for having me on that was great <laughs>